you would turn back with me in your copies of God's word uh, to our last scripture reading. It's John's second epistle, second John. Just hold that in front of you uh, for a moment or two. The epistle begins at verse 1 with something of a staggering introduction. It reads simply, the elder unto the elect lady and her children. John is writing, uh, perhaps very much likely, it's the case he's in the twilight of his ministry. Here you have a son of thunder, and the Lord is quickly drawing him home. And he writes, he writes to this elect lady, and he says that he's an elder. Here you don't find uh, simply a letter among those who are friends. John here is commissioned by the Spirit of God to perform the work of a shepherd of souls. And so that's precisely what this epistle is about. It is a shepherding letter to one called an elect lady. Now, the earliest commentaries on this epistle, the very earliest, all the way back to the second century, recognize that John here is writing to a specific woman. Uh, There's no allegory involved, and the history of the church has taken that on, as it ought to have. Uh, The idea is that here is a woman, and then we're told that he is writing to her and to her children. And so, friend, what you and I have in this text is an epistle, a spirit-inspired letter to a family. Now, Philemon, you remember, Paul wrote to a master of a house. Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to likely a student named Theophilus. So John wrote this familiar epistle, said David Dixon, to one noble and holy matron and her children, that he might appropriate the doctrine which he had commended in the former epistle, 1 John, to this private family. Now, the thesis, if you like, of this book is really straightforward. This pastoral letter to a family really consists of primarily in a, a simple exhortation. Uh, this family is urged to press on in obedience to what Christ has given and to continue as well in the same faith that they've received. They are to believe the truth, specifically at verse 7, that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Now, our text this evening is just the ninth verse. And it's at the ninth verse that the apostle now gives incentives to this family to remain steadfast in their obedience and faith. I want you to notice at the beginning of that ninth verse, we read this. And whosoever transgresseth, transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. Now, first of all, I want you to notice there that the Apostle John is actually referring to something that was alluded to earlier in this epistle. If you go back to the fourth verse, it's there even in our English translations. He says in verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in the truth. Literally, in the original, that fourth verse is some of your children walking in the truth. In other words, not all. Not all of the children of this wise, this holy matron, 
really was abiding in the truth. Some of the children, then, that belong to this woman are those who are described in the first line of our text, those who have transgressed and have not abided in the doctrine of Christ. But he says that this is their reward, or really their judgment. Such have not God. And I just want to come, friend, before we proceed, to note that what the apostle doesn't say. He doesn't say that they don't have the knowledge of God. He doesn't say that they don't have the blessing of God. Neither does he say that they lack the experience of communion with God. John is very emphatic. These ones have not God. But he makes a contrast. He that abideth, on the other hand, in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. And again, friend, what you notice here is he doesn't say that they have the doctrine of the Father and the Son. The believer here, he is given something far more personal. It's given to him as though he is its possessor. The Father and the Son are the believers. A friend, this ninth verse, just based on what we've seen so far, is a staggering text. Probably one of the most staggering in all of the New Testament. Staggering, of course, because it's so concise. But shocking in all of its implications. Friend, this is an incentive like no other to remain steadfast in the faith. It's an incentive that is truly unparalleled. The highest that the word of God gives to us. Those who remain steadfast, says John, have the Father and the Son. What this text teaches us, and this is our theme this evening, is that the believer presently has God. The believer presently has God. And I want us to briefly look at this in the way that John presents it to us. I want us to see this in three ways. And first of all, I want us to look at the instrument. How does the believer have God in the present? He says simply that these are those who abide in the doctrine of Christ. Now, the contrast in the ninth verse is quite explicit and so emphatic. The idea there is that, in truth, it is one's abiding in the faith that really makes them those who have God who have the Father and the Son. But I want you to notice that in that emphasis, there's also something else that's quite crucial. And that is the idea that these are those who abide. These are those who remain. These are the ones, John writes, who have this great inheritance. And they have it because their faith is an abiding faith. This abiding faith is the instrument that lays hold of God in Christ. And friend, I want us to think about that just in two ways, very, very briefly. I want you to notice, first of all, that John offers here an incredible corrective for our generation. After he's exhorted them to charity earlier on in the epistle, he comes to this. And that reminds us, friend, that Christianity is not simply a a system of ethics, as it were, a pattern of morality. No, it's so much more than that. No, one must 
have faith in the God who is. One must lay hold of him with a true faith. Uh, And so, friend, doctrinal Christianity, it's necessary. Contrary to what so many people would tell you, where doctrine doesn't matter, where the truth of God can can be easily left at the wayside so long as somebody is a moral and, and generally religious person, whatever that means. John says he'll have none of it. Those who are truly, truly interested in God are those who abide in the doctrine they've received from Christ. And friend, that's propositional truth. That means you and I need to know doctrine. That means you and I need to lay hold of the truth that God has given us in his word and to hold to it steadfastly. Whatever a man, whatever a woman's experience might be, whatever their sentimentality might be, this is preeminent. They must have a faith that lays hold of the truth of God. But the second point I want you to notice here is that this is a faith that abides. True and saving faith is a persevering faith. And friend, that's indispensably so. Again, 1 Peter 1 and verse 15 reminds us of this fact powerfully. The Christian is described there as those who are kept by the power of God through faith. There is no such thing in all of Scripture as a saving faith that acts once. It is a continual act. It is an abiding in the gospel. The only faith that is a saving faith is an abiding faith. And so, friend, what you find in this text is the apostle urges here this elect lady and her children to remain steadfast, to exercise that faith continually. Now, the idea, friend, that's behind here is something that's not difficult for us to grasp. Imagine just for a moment if somebody was hanging off of a cliff's edge And another person, a very strong-armed person, grabbed hold of your hand as you were going over that ledge. First of all, friend, would would you thank your hand that grabbed hold of his? Would you owe anything to that hand that laid hold of your rescuer? And the answer is no. Not at all. But friend, if you if you are really if you are one who is intending to be saved, would you ever let go? And the answer is no. And so, so friends, so is faith. Faith merits nothing. It's simply the instrument that lays hold of our strong Redeemer. We owe it no thanks. It comes from the new nature wrought by the Spirit of God, and it is Christ who saves through faith. But the second point is, It is a continual operation. It's a constant act. And it must be. And so, friend, here the apostle urges those who are Christians not to loosen their grip. Friend, even though it's the the case that those who are possessed of true saving faith can never lose it, it will always of necessity be active Yet the exhortation is necessary. Yet the scriptures urge this perseverance in faith. 
Because, friend, indeed, our, our, our grip can loosen. Here the apostle urges us to dwell, to live, and really to hang our lives upon the gospel. But a faith, this abiding faith, is the instrument. I want us to look, first of all, at the inheritance, and I want us to do so by contrast. He says, those who do not abide in the doctrine of Christ, he says here, hath not God. And that means, despite whatever profession these children might have made, despite whatever fellowship they might have enjoyed with true believers, they do not have God. They do not have God. And friend, this again is a shocking statement. Because what you you see here is the Apostle John is not saying that they will lack God in eternity. And neither is he speaking at all here about hellfire. The apostle is saying that presently they do not have God. There is a present hell. Friend, there is a genuine hell on earth. A foretaste of eternal torment. And that's described for us in this text. These ones are described as without God in the world. But as this is a contrast, friend, as we see that the unbeliever does not have God now, we also understand that the believer, conversely, does have God in the present. This text teaches both. The believer has God as his and in the present. Now, for us to see this, I think, a bit more clearly, I want you to think just for a moment about the unbeliever about the sinner who is without God in the world. Friend, if we meditate on him, and we meditate on the fact that it is from his sin, that is, of course, his original sin and his actual transgressions, he is separated from Almighty God, then I think we'll have a better understanding of the heinousness of sin. I mean, think about it, friend. Society, when they look at the drug addict, why, why do they find addiction so heinous? It's because even even the unbeliever can understand that these drugs rob men and women of good things. Friend, what has sin robbed mankind of? The blessings of God. Sure. Continuity of life. Absolutely. But friend, all of that pales in comparison to the fact that sin robbed man of God. Not of his blessings only, but of God. And John says here that the unbeliever, as he remains in his unbelief, is still robbed of God. Friend, this ought to be a staggering picture of the heinousness of sin, in that it divests men of the greatest reward, of the most lovely inheritance, of the most precious lot, God himself. But conversely, friend John tells us in this text that the true believer, he has God. A friend, this is a reminder for us 
that faith is that which in the decree of God was pleased to be the instrument by which we would be interested in all of God's blessings. One of our forebears puts it this way. He says, faith interests us and gives us title to all of these privileges. Christ is the object of a Christian's faith on whom it is terminated. Faith, which is in Christ, receives that leading privilege, forgiveness of sins. Without this privilege, we are strangers to all other privileges. Being under sin, we are heirs of wrath and in no capacity of mercy. And then he closes, There is no privilege bottomed on Christ that hath foundation in him, but faith receives. Faith then must be a condition of the covenant. My friend, if we think of the deprivation of God as it shows us the heinousness of sin, we ought to see here then something of the sanctity of faith. By God's design, it would be the instrument as it's exercised upon Jesus Christ as clothed in the gospel by which men would have God again. A friend, all of this is bottomed on the covenant. How is it that faith can interest us in God in this way? It is because God in the covenant through his son is pleased to give himself to his people. The covenant is, as it were, the precondition to all that we're seeing tonight. But what does that mean? What does it mean for God to give himself over to his people in covenant? Friend, very briefly, all that that holds out to us, and I mean all, not in the sense that we could exhaust it, we can't, but all in the sense that that here you have the believer once and again in the scriptures crying out of the benefits that he receives. That's the all. It's in view here. And friend, as you look at this, if you look at this through the scriptures, you see this readily. When the Christian thinks of God being his, he sees that God's omnipotence, in a sense, is his. Because it's employed for the believer's security. Almighty strength now is employed for the believer's good. When he thinks of divine beauty, He thinks of that which is his and will infinitely satisfy if indeed his faculties could sustain infinity. The beauty of God is his. And of course, friend, the love of God is his. It is his to delight in for all of eternity. God is his in all of these respects and in so much more. And friend, you think about this in the context of a family. You think of a child who, who's under some kind of distress. He, he runs to his father. And, and why? Because he believes that his father's arm will be his in the sense that it will be employed for his good. That his father's wisdom will, will be exercised to make sure that the child, his well-being is secured. He goes to his father. Well, friend, is it not staggering in the scriptures that whenever the believer thinks of God, he calls him my salvation, my strength, my song. Friend, all of those are pregnant expressions that take us back to this idea 
that God through the covenant of grace has become has become his people's God. He has given himself to them. And all that that means. But I want us to close thirdly, friend, not looking just at the inheritance, but looking at the intimacy that's in view here. John adds that the believer has both the father and the son. Now, when he first of all dealt with what the unbeliever lacked, he said, God. And friend, that, that of course speaks to us both of the divine essence and the divine persons. And so it's presented to us in the most general way imaginable. The unbeliever is divested of God, and that's all that needs to be said. But the Spirit of God, taking John as his penman, goes further with regard to the believer. He could have said the same, and it all would have held true. But he goes further and he says that the believer has the Father and the Son as well. Friend, I want you to notice that there's something particular here. Something personal the Apostle is emphasizing. The believer in this text is told that he has each person of the adorable Trinity in some sense as his. Now, all three of the persons of the Godhead are in our text. The Father and the Son are named explicitly, but I want you to notice just briefly, the Spirit of God here is denominated not by his his name, but by his operation. You remember in 1 John 2, John tells the church there, he says, the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye shall abide in him. In other words, friend, if there's any abiding, like you see in this text, it is the operation of the Spirit of God. And so all three persons of the blessed and adorable Trinity are in this text, and all are made out to be the believers, to be theirs. And friend, as we look at this text, I want you to notice here that that this then moves us beyond the works of God. It's not just true that that God, as it were, works employing all of his attributes for the good of the believer, as we thought about just a minute ago. But here, John makes it so much more personal. Each of the persons of the Trinity, and he's careful to make sure that we know that all three are here, each of them belong to the Christian. Here, we're not dealing just with the works of God being employed for the believer. But here we're told that the believer has Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as his. I don't know about you, but I I think this is one of those texts where it's hard for us just, just even to come to the foothills of its brilliance. We will spend an eternity, friend, Thinking of what this text means. It means, though we wish we could say so much more, it means this, that that the Father is yours. That the Son is your elder brother and your husband. That the Spirit is your great comforter. That all three of them are pleased, of course, as the decree is one, but pleased to be yours personally. Pleased, as the text tells us, to be had by the believer. 
And friend, in this way then the Christian is blessed above angels. Here the Father is intimately ours. No angel could call Christ elder brother or husband. Friend, does this not stagger you? In a human family, among ourselves, a mutual belonging increases love. As a husband thinks about the fact that that he is his wife's only husband. Or if a parent thinks about about his child knowing that that he is that child's only father. It, It only increases one's love. Friend, when the believer thinks about the fact that God was pleased to give himself... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to you. Should that not increase your love that he gave himself in the covenant to you? I want us to close this evening, friend, just with a question. Does your heart sing after a text like this? One early church father put it this way. It's a lengthy lengthy quote, but I think it's important because it's precisely the response, the kind of response you and I should have to such a passage. The man wrote, he said, If I owe myself unto God for my creation, what shall I give for my restoration? Especially being restored after such a manner. Neither was I so easily restored as I was created. It is first work. He gave me unto myself. In his second, he gave himself unto me. By giving me himself, he hath restored me unto myself. Being therefore given and restored, I owe myself for myself, and so I owe myself unto God by a double right. But what shall I render unto God? For giving himself unto me. For though I should give myself a thousand times for recompense, what am I in comparison of him? Friend, the exhortation in this text is to remain steadfast. And like I said to you already, I don't think you could find a greater incentive remain steadfast because the incentive is God himself all three persons of the blessed and adorable trinity made out to be yours as you hold to him by faith in Christ so allow me to press that exhortation as we close I want you to notice that what John is writing here is not a future reality he is saying that presently God belongs to the Christian Presently, that is yours, friend. So why do we feed on husks? Why are we so tantalized by the world? Why are we aching for things that are so creaturely? When the scriptures tell us and God stamps his name upon it, 
that presently he's yours. Friend, you are not exhorted here to attain something you don't already have. You're exhorted to enjoy the God who's already made himself over to you. This should make us otherworldly people, friend. I can't think, as, as your pastor, I can't think of any greater incentive to drive us to prayer, to more earnest attendance on the means, to more care and conscientiousness in our carriage in this life. Because all of that, friend, is just resting in the fact that God is ours. Friend, I have no greater, stead, never, no greater argument to steadfastness and declining age. May we be steadfast. We who have both the Father and the Son. Amen.